Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. You are here with your host, Auntie Vice, and I'm really excited today. If you listened to the show last week, you heard Marla Renee Stewart on, who's amazing, and this is one of her her co-creators, partners in crime, and a lot of different things, and another phenomenal woman working in body positive, body liberation space, Luna Matadas. Welcome to the show. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me. And I'm so glad I get to be a sandwich with Marla. Marla's the best. (laughs) You guys do amazing work. Like Marla, you started in pleasure advocacy, you know, uh, work around pleasure liberation early on. How, which, you know, for people in our age range, that wasn't like what you could major in in college. So how did it go for you? Funny enough, I went to Catholic school (laughs) in high school, so I knew nothing. And I actually started volunteering at uh, an HIV AIDS network at the time. And in the 90s, you know, the mid 90s, it was a lot of gay men's information. And I was like, wait, what? People have sex for reasons other than making babies like it didn't and i had gay friends in catholic high school of course but it wasn't it wasn't in in my understanding of of pleasure or sex so that really opened up how i thought about sex and i went on to work in public health and talking about condoms and stis and i was working in eastern and southern africa and then i came back to canada and was working with racialized communities immigrant communities and lgbtq communities and uh no matter where i was like auntie vice like it, I could be like in a village in the middle of nowhere, or I could be in a burb of Toronto and people wanted to know about pleasure. So I could talk till I was blue in the face about condoms, but they were like, how do I eat his ass? How do I get her to do this thing? How do I, you know, how do I be good at the sex? <laughs> That's amazing. So with those early experiences, especially going to Catholic school, that can really mess people up about sexuality. Was there a period of unlearning what you had learned in high school? Yeah, I feel it's still going on. (laughs) I feel like lots of things come up where I think, oh, wow, that's that's weird. That doesn't match with all the other stuff that I now know. So there was definitely a lot of shame around masturbation. The first time I had an orgasm wasn't the first time I masturbated, but I remember I begged Jesus to grow my hymen back because I thought the orgasm, the pelvic contractions were like busting my hymen out or something. So I I didn't understand any pleasure anatomy. I'd never heard the word clitoris till my late 20s, maybe. And I think a lot of people in my classes share this experience where they don't, they have a just kind of this idea of reproductive sexual anatomy. So tons of unlearning, tons. How did you start that? 
I mean, obviously you got exposed to some talk around sexuality with gay men, which have a different approach if you're not reproducing, but that's different than a female body and female pleasure is less known. So how did you start really exploring and learning about female pleasure? Oh my God, this is where the beautiful cycle of (laughs) me to me (laughs) comes back in. I was actually, I was living in a a suburb of, of Toronto with my parents And I had come across this like free city newspaper from downtown that had these classes and they were at this feminist sex shop called Good For Her. And I saw a class on the G spot and I was like, I don't know what that is, but I'm going to take two buses and the metro and then I'm going to figure it out. (laughs) And I was so struck by Carlisle, who was the person teaching this. Carlisle just stood up there and was like, yes, so this is the clitoris. These are the legs of the clitoris. This is, and I was like, wait, what? It's not a button. I thought it was a button. (laughs) And I just thought it was amazing to be able to learn about my own body from somebody else who was so non-judgmental, who was so open, who was answering everybody's questions. And it seemed like a secret. Like I discovered some kind of secret in this room with 15 other people trying to learn about what the G-spot is. And now you do that for other people. You have entire classes on the G-spot. Yeah. (laughs) You actually have, you teach a ton of stuff about pleasure. What's your favorite class to teach? Oh my God, it's so hard to pick. I teach like 35 different classes. Okay, my favorite one, the go-to one, if you were like, what do you want to teach tomorrow? It would be Be a Fab Femdom. I love teaching feminine dominance. I think it's something I thought I couldn't access, especially in a fat body. I thought that it would masculinize me. I thought it would make me more aggressive. And those weren't characteristics that patriarchy thinks is cute. So uh, I really used feminine dominance as a way of like taking up more space in this body. And I see it when I teach people about owning your intentions, owning your desires, understanding about receiving and mutual pleasure. Those are characteristics of a lot of different types of sex, but in femdoming, you get to demand that. There's there's an entitlement to that that most of us don't have outside of those spaces. And you bring up a couple of things. One is when you're in a bigger body, people think of pleasure differently and what you can do. So what are some of the big misconceptions about being bigger bodied and sex do you run into and you want to dispel? Ooh, let's talk about face sitting. because the smallest person to the biggest person thinks they're going to kill their partner. I Googled it. No, there's no deaths reported to face sitting. So it's not a thing, but we all have this idea, especially if you are uh, the more feminine person in the relationship or a woman in the relationship, it really is about you being smaller to affirm your masculine partner's power and, and reinforce that. And so face sitting is an act that might be seen as, as dominant. It could be seen as submissive, but your body is is in a position where you're doing the doing. And so it feels, it might feel like a different intention other than receiving. So receiving something like penetration. So I think a lot of fat people think that, you know, we can't get on top because it's going to hurt our partner, that um, there are also physical limitations. Maybe your knees can't spread in the position you want it to, or my hips don't spread in a position I want it to. My belly is on their forehead at the same time that my pussy's on their face. So there's, there's all these expectations about what it should look like instead of, let's hack it, you know, let's like 
Put a pillow to raise their head up so it's closer so your knees don't have to spread as far. Let's use the wall so that you can balance yourself so you're not actually sitting, you're kind of squatting on somebody. Let's talk about it. Let's say, hey, babe, like make sure that you tap my leg if you are struggling to breathe. So I think that's, that actually applies to a lot of different sexual positions. We're afraid to um, give ourselves the support. And also, we don't know how. We don't know how to give ourselves the support using props, using uh, different positions, using communication, even having to move certain body parts out of the way, lifting bellies, lifting breasts. Those things are not ever shown to us. They're never taught to us. And we've probably been shamed about it too. We've been embarrassed to have to move or do things differently than we think other bodies are doing it. And I don't know if it's the same for you, but for me, even with all the unlearning and working in the field, there are still times I'm with a partner and I get uncomfortable with my own body because of the size and moving around. How do you move through that? How do people get past that and just get okay, realize that, yeah, my my belly's going to sit on his forehead when I'm sitting on his face, and that's how it goes. Like, because you don't see that in porn, you don't see that in sexual education in most places. So, how do you how can people process through that and get okay with doing stuff that they really like? Ooh, uh, yeah, because I'm, I'm sure people avoid. I do. I've I've often avoided positions that I thought would. Oh, that's a bad angle. They're gonna see my chins. They're gonna see the saggy of my tits or things like that. And we're really robbing ourselves of pleasure, but we're also betraying our bodies. We're saying, no, like, you can't have what you want. We're going to prioritize what this looks like. And, you know, I I think what we look like is so, it's been built in as this big objectifying thing that connects to our hotness, our value, our ability to have pleasure. And what you look like is probably the least interesting thing about you sexually, right? Or in any other way. And it's going to be constantly changing. So we're going to have to do what what you're asking and come into relationship with these parts of ourselves that are uncomfortable, they're self-judgmental, they don't have enough compassion for ourselves um, over and over again. You know, we're all aging except for like J-Lo. So, you know, we've got these moments where we we might not be able to do that. We might not be able to kind of say, okay, I'll just put my knee here or I'll do it here. I think what's important is in when you feel that coming up, when you feel that self-judgment coming up, there are tools that that you can use. You can always call a break. You can say, can we take a little break? Like mm-hmm. something's off for me. Instead of like powering through, some of us numb out, some of us overperform. Asking your partner, like, can we just get some water? That way you can sit with your feelings a bit and be like, okay, can I, can I knock myself out of this? Or do I need to like, we need to stop. We need to do something else. I think honoring that is is so important. You can also try using your senses to come back into the moment. So focusing, as soon as you notice you're going up into your head, into the squirrels about how not good enough you are, you know, can you take in the wetness of your partner's tongue on your body right now? Can you grip the sheets next to your bed and just feel like the tension? Anything that you can do to uh, pick up on something that's happening in the moment can sometimes bring you back. For other people, actually for everybody, I think also doing this work outside of the bedroom. So you got to feel cute in other places and be able to validate your own cuteness. And um, that's really hard to do. It's it's super hard. I've done so much work around 
my clothing, but I, I still look at things and I think, oh, but my belly's going to show in that. It's, I'm still not dressing for fun, for expression, for like what I actually like. I'm dressing for somebody else's approval. Well, you bring that up, but you have such amazing publicity shots. Like your site is filled with these darling pictures and you in all of these sexy and fun outfits. What was it like when you started seeing those images come back? Because what we see in our heads versus when somebody else takes that picture, there's often a difference. So when you saw these pictures coming back with you in corsets and the unicorn and everything, what went through your own head? Oh my gosh, I love that that you love the pics. Uh, they're they're so fun. <laughs> they're just like I'm like, what is my life? <laughs> this is great. <laughs> you know, I I had this experience where I was looking at the first set of pics with my photographer at the time. And I kept talking about myself in the third person. Like for me, this was an alter ego. This wasn't really me. And uh, my photographer was like, you know, that's you, right? This is like actually you. You were in that corset, in that thing. I saw you. I had to adjust your nipple. You had to do this. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but it feels, it doesn't feel like like what I've come to know is is me. And over time, that's why I do some of these selfie shoots for myself. Um, any uh, any of the professional shoots also are, are part of this reclaiming my gaze and really learning to look at myself in different ways and say, you know, also on the other end of things that I stopped kind of wearing bras, you know, bras for me now are like shapewears for photo shoots. And, and so there's a different mm -hmm. expectation. I have a wider spectrum of existence in this body now. So I can have the glam, but I can also have, I feel cute going out, you know, wearing a bralette and maybe my skin uh, is not uh, as perfect as I want it to be, or my legs are hairy and just experimenting with what it's like to be human, <laughs> you know, but yeah, the photos were a big help. They were, they were a super help. You know, it's the thing that's really struck me in doing all these interviews, because very early on, I interviewed um, Elle Chase. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and, she, and she really talks about the power of seeing you're somebody else take sexy photos of you. And I've had a number of bigger body people say it makes a difference. And it sounds like same for you. It took a while to get comfortable seeing it. But yeah, seeing how somebody else sees you is really affirming it a lot of the time. I think it really is. And you also see that that's a one dimensional image. So you'll take 56 shots and, you know, maybe like eight of them, but you're the same person in all of that. And it helped me kind of see, yeah, this is angles. This is some of this is performance. And I'm, I'm also, my personality is the same with a bra or with a, you know, a bralette or without a bra. And, um, being able to look at those photos on my site, seeing them and then meeting me in person, I'm the same person. And, and so I, the, it really comes through that. It comes through in this like fun, warm, open kind of way. And then there's parts of me, of course, that are not like that. So I think it just made me feel much more uh, whole, like I could take up more space. Where did you go around finding a photographer who can shoot a bigger body and a dark skinned body? Because those are unique skills amongst photographers. 100%. 100%. Um, I'm going to credit gay men again for uh, <laughs> for this this love. Both of my photographers were racialized gay men, gay men of color, and had, had portfolios with people who were of all different body sizes. Age was also important to see in the portfolio. I thought that was really interesting. But before them, I did have someone that 
I I didn't know. I didn't know to ask those questions. I didn't know to think about that. I thought that was part of skill. And um, when I saw the photos, I cried. I just cried. I was like, oh my God, I'm so ugly. I'm so that like I knew it. I knew I shouldn't have done this. But it was their inability to use lighting. They weren't looking at angles. And I didn't feel the same kind of warmth and support. And I also now start kind of treating photo shoots, even if I'm doing my own little cute one in my bedroom, I start treating them as little creative um, projects. So I want to create a lookbook. I want to direct what I'm going to be there. I'm not dependent on the photographer telling me to move in a certain way. I'm like, what do I want to say with this yellow dress and pink whip? You know, what's my message here? <laughs> so you brought up female dominance, and that's not a space many of us who are born in female bodies, you know, we're taught like you're to be small, you're to be quiet, you're to be, be respectable. And which is nothing I've ever been able to achieve in my life. That doesn't but surprise <laughs> me. <laughs> how, how did you start to come into your own dominant voice and embrace that? Yeah. Well, you said it. I think I think it's a rebellion against all those characteristics. And I was so I started to notice even being more obedient to patriarchy's idea of a desirable woman, you know, trying to be small, trying not to take up space with boundaries. I'm not going to say what I like to this man because he's just going to think I'm a problem. That wasn't getting me anywhere either. I was still getting garbage dates. I was not getting good sex. And um, so it was kind of a being fed up with that. Right. And and I think moving into feeling that I could even try something different was 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 difficult because it felt risky. It felt vulnerable. And I, I actually started with feminine dominance that was non-sexual at first. And so there's lots of people that enjoy things like domestic service or foot worship or being cross-dressed in front of you or things like that. And that actually helped me practice what's super important about any kind of king is that communication, that negotiation, and really getting an affirmation from this person that they want to be treated like this. They, they want to feel female supremacy. They want to feel goddess power. They want to feel feminine dominance. And that was very affirming. And I think when we we go into kink, kink is like the these little microcosms, these little worlds that we get to play with that we may have some connection to outside, maybe in a an opposing way or in an affirming way. And being able to role play receiving selfishly, being able to role play being bossy as fuck. Being able to role play, feeling unapologetic. Like these were characteristics that you know, women aren't allowed, but particularly fat women are not allowed to be these things. So it was like an untaming. Well, and fat women are supposed to be funny and jovial. Yeah. And dominance does not have to be funny and jovial. Was it scary to move into a place where you were doing stuff that you've been told your whole life this is a bad thing to do? Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, it was super scary. It also really tugged at at this, okay, well, if I can't do this, you know, what else is there? Like, where, where, else, where else am I going to find sexy? So there felt like there was something something at risk there. I think I, think I really struggled with the receiving piece as a, a fat person. I think um, anyone born female, you know, or assigned female at birth, we are taught immediately to be nurturers, to be givers, human givers, and just like endless giving. 
And uh, within dominance, there definitely is giving to your partner. There's an exchange, but this this service, this worship, all these kinds of things were really uncomfortable for me. I thought I had to be the one who had to be useful, who had to be objectified, who had to be used for pleasure. And so doing it the other way, you get this kind of like villain charge of energy, right? Like the villain charisma, that adrenaline. And it's it's just role play with an erotic reward. And so that imagination that we we all have helps us kind of fuel that. But yeah, it was really difficult to even even kind of feel in power over somebody else because I thought that was being unlikable or that uh, I would be seen as like isolated in some way from my femininity. It would take away from being like feminine, which is the goal, I guess, of being liked. And you have the the compounding issue of also being darker skin, which there's a whole nother set of taboos and rules around that. So how does race start to show up in your own relationships in a way that makes it comfortable to embrace that dominance? Yeah, I love that question. Yeah, race, race for me was, it was weird because I would have people fetishizing me. So they wanted like a a goddess of color or a black goddess. And it was at first I thought, okay, cool, whatever, you know, that's fine. You should, you should worship me at that way. <laughs> and, and I saw it as, as affirming. I was like, cool, that's great. And then as I started to, to explore more, some of it didn't land well for me. And some of it had to the fetishization. I, I had to really think about what am I getting out of it? And so there are some aspects of race play in kink that are interesting for people and can be really empowering for people. Other people, it's a hard no, that's not a thing for me. For me, I, I definitely engage in in race play and because I enjoy dominating uh, big white men. And big white men are the ones that I don't have power over in, in everyday life. So it's thrilling to to do that, to behave in ways where um, I might well be punished or experience violence in in another in another environment. I, I actually started working on the Race and Kink series with Marla. We do a monthly discussion around race and kink with talking about issues like this. Um, it came from a personal experience where I I had experienced people who were trying to separate my identities. So if I'm a kinkster, why am I talking about race? Why why am I talking about these things? Why am I bringing this into this space? And I thought this is so interesting because <laughs> I can't pull those things apart, right? I can't I can't put them in a basket and put them somewhere else. And so to to have these monthly discussions where we're covering everything from the perspectives of BIPOC people um, there are lots of white people who also attend, but it's it's really giving an opportunity, a platform for just different perspectives and for people to also learn about how racism shows up in kinky spaces, in our relationships, and what are some of the things we can all do to create more anti-racist kink. So I guess for personally, I enjoy where I have the power and some people enjoy race play where they are replicating some of the systemic oppression, but it all depends on what the intention is. And if people agree and it's fun and they can take care of each other, then it's empowering. Uh, If it's not that, then it's not empowering. (laughs) In in your series with Malerla, as well as some of the other discussions that have gone on at various conferences, it's been fascinating to me to see, for lack of a better term, the woke white people 
who really want to show up and be allies, but haven't done the work to break it down, their response to it versus what BIPOC people are actually saying about race and kink. And for you, have you noticed big differences between the people who are like, so you want to weigh in on that? Because yeah, there's there's some definitely big discussions with some some very loud white voices lately, and they don't necessarily seem to be in line with the BIPOC kinksters I've spoken with. Well, it's so I love I love I love this question too because Marla and I were actually chatting about. Uh, she's like, so who who actually said uh, that we need to get rid of master slave? Like, who was that a person of color or was this some white ally? And I was like, I don't know. I, I'm like, I didn't get the memo. I'm not sure. If, whatever. Um, I think what's uncomfortable with some of the the white allyship is exactly what you said. It's it's not listening to the diversity of of BIPOC voices. Like, we don't have one representative, you know. <laughs> And I think that making assumptions around what that we even want more rules or that I don't want my eroticism policed a- anymore. I, I don't think that that's where we're going to get erotic liberation from. And uh, cre- I think there's there's just this reluctance to share share power. And and I mean, that's like all of us have have that in some way. But it's really interesting just to see. What people have decided is like, okay, this is how we're going to fix racism. And we're all like, that was the exact opposite of what we at like nobody nobody asked for that. <laughs> We'd like to see more inclusive. Um, this comes up a lot in Racing King. People want to see more inclusive events. And what makes them inclusive is not a, there's no script, there's no checklist. It's really about learning to relate in ways that there there might be conflict, there might be debate, there might be diverse opinions, there might be, you know, external support that's needed. And that's messy. And I think most people that I hear kind of on the the white ally side, you know, are looking for a checklist and looking for a script, which is what we all do when we hold power in in a space. And one thing that often doesn't get addressed, especially because I end up getting dragged into the white ally conversations a lot. There there was actually a memo that went around on the MS terms who white kingsters. There's a number of us who got got a letter on it. And it, it floored me, right? It, it, it floored me. But um, one of the things that doesn't get talked about as much is how you create emotional inclusion. Because you can invite a whole diverse group of people to speak at your event that doesn't make it inclusive. So it's like, here's the Black panel. Here is the Native panel. Here is the Asian King panel. That is not inclusive. But it makes a checklist. Absolutely. How do do we make events more emotionally supportive and actually inclusive? Ooh, yeah. It's it's like, oh, well, we put a few beige people on our poster now, and so let's do it. Or the best is, well, it is open to everyone. We've tried to get people to come, but they don't want to come. And no, then then it's a problem. There's a a barrier there. I think... (laughs) I just think there's there's so much around having this emotional uh, not I don't know if the word's availability but but emotional willingness to to actually hold some of the difficult emotions that are going to come up when you're trying to change old structures and you're trying to make new ones. I don't think people are looking to try and squeeze and wedge them ways into the old structures. I don't think that's what BIPOC people at large are looking for. I think we want to all and actually I think even white allies are 
um, well intentionally interested in building something new, but we we have to dismantle the old first. So that might look like, you know, we we had a lot of white allyship come out in our very first kind of season of Racing Kink, and it slowly dwindles. So we, we'd love to see more people being uh, involved in conversations where they're not centered. And I think having that practice of having to sit with discomfort, to have to sit with resistance that comes up with you, to have to, you know, sit with whataboutism, um, that that's a, a great experience, um, a difficult one. But it it is something that will kind of help you see that your perspective isn't necessarily the the only one or the right one. Uh, I think there's also opportunity to leverage the existing leaders in in the community without making it laborious for them. Um, after 2020, I think there there was just this rush of people trying to get like BIPOC kinksters everywhere. So we all had all kinds of invitations. Uh, many of them came with no money. And so all of this expecting a BIPOC free labor is is awful. And I think it's rampant in, in the kink community. I think there's so many festivals and events that um, are really not invested in supporting BIPOC labor, but they want to benefit from expertise. Early on, when I was doing the show, I had Andrew Gerza on, who's a disability advocate. Yeah, he, also Canadian. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and Andrew's great, but he, he would talk about being the only disabled person invited to something and the need to add the token tax, that you add 35% to your fee if you're filling a token space and you have to pay that to get you there. I don't think that's all wrong for kink events. Like if you're not going to actually do the work and you want me on your panel, my fees go up by 35%. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I love that. That's a great idea. Way to go, Andrew. <laughs> right. I, I, I think there's some real validity to that because you'll be like, you know, I, I speak a lot on trans and non-binary issues. It's like, great, come but we're not going to pay for your airfare and we're not going to pay for your hotel and you may get a hundred dollars for the panel. And I'm like, Nope. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. You, we can't afford it. None of us at this point can afford to do all of that to help somebody else feel a little better about themselves for two hours. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And there are so many creative ways to do this, which, which is, you know, what we're talking about, like, how do you, what are the, the technical things? How do you create those things? I mean, Marla and I pay ourselves and our guests every month. And, you know, there are things around, you can create affiliates, you can get sponsors, like do that. Just try, just try, you know, just like put a little bit of effort, just try, raise your ticket prices, create tiered pricing. There's so many different ways. Exactly. Exactly. And thinking people have been at the fore of that, uh, uh, Jezebel, who runs Forbidden Tickets, you can have tiered pricing, right? On You can have gift tickets to create space for people who can't afford it, but you still have to pay the people who are doing the work. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that you, you've got these great boundaries around it for your work. That's amazing. <laughs> not easy. I, I think we all... No, it's not. It's not. I've spoken to so many folks who, have, who are working in some form of body liberation, and there's this need to do the work because you see the necessity and this this need to you feel like you're you're somehow flaking out if you're not doing a free event yeah that passed for me a long time ago when my back went out 
<laughs> I I just really got so burnt out from saying yes to everything from that place. Uh, well, partly from I didn't know I didn't have any boundaries, and then partly from you know being really wanting to do the work, wanting to collaborate with people, and often collaborating with people who are getting paid to organize these events. So everybody's getting paid but me. And um, I think that also comes from our our building up of our our self confidence too, and really feeling like no, my work is worth something. And also, there's a particular quality of life I want to be able to have, and I wish that for everyone. Like, why are we keeping each other poor? You know, what are we doing? <laughs> like, coming into your own dominant voice then translate into a bit of that confidence in your own work, you know, outside of erotic spaces. It totally did because feeling like a goddess and a queen in a consensual erotic power exchange, it made me see that those parts of me exist in me all the time. And so I can bring them out just through a different lens. I'm not going to go dom my Starbucks person or something, you know, but, <laughs> but I, I learned to speak up a little bit more. I learned to honor things in me like irritation and annoyance instead of running quickly to shut those things down. I also learned to take a step back and really think about, is this a yes or am I just like trying to not have to deal with saying no? You know, what what's actually going on here? And I also learned a lot through Marla. There, there's Marla's got this beautiful way of being around boundaries where you can trust her no because you can also trust her yes or something, whatever that that saying is. But when she says no, when she says when she says yes, I trust it. Whereas with me, I've told her, I'm like, you got to ask me twice because I'm just going to say yes. So make sure you ask a second time. <laughs> so doming definitely helped with that because I had to be sure. I had to be like, okay, do you want this thing? Are you sure about this thing? <laughs> you you are fairly visible with your work. And after a couple of years ago, where Peg, Peg the Patriarchy made the runway again. How has your family taken your work? My mom, my mom doesn't, she's, she doesn't, she tells people she doesn't know what I do. I'm like, you know, that makes you look like a terrible mother, don't you? <laughs> and um, my, my dad, he's so, he's so supportive. He's always been like, you know, my daughter's going to see the world. She'll fall in love if she wants to, and she's going to get educated. And so there was never any pressure for me other than like, go work hard and like, be happy. And um, when I first showed them my business card, which has one of those like burlesque kind of photos on it, I gave it to my mom and she was like making, pretending to be shocked about it. And uh, she showed it to my dad and she was like, look what your daughter is doing. And my dad said, you know, leave the girl alone because she's going to do whatever she wants anyways. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's kind of true. So I think that, you know, even from the time when I was working in HIV work, they were happy with my spirit of being interested in serving community and helping people. And so I, they don't know that I teach cock and ball torture classes, but, but they they can appreciate I'm doing something where I'm really happy and I get to travel and I get to meet so many people. You live in Canada. You're up in the Toronto area. Uh, we've had a number of guests on there. What is the kink scene like? In, in Toronto, because it's different in every city. And I find when you travel, it's not the same internationally. So how's life in Toronto for kinky dating and, and connection? Yeah. Ooh. Um, so I would say that the, the Toronto scene does feel a bit more reserved than when I played in places like Atlanta or the Bay Area. But I think also, I mean, it's very white. And um, the the organized parts of the kink scene are pretty white. I'm going to change that. So wait, Toronto, I'm coming for you. Um, <laughs> but 
I also think that there's there is a, a a wonderful social justice community here, and there's a huge queer community. So the the ability to connect and be able to do um, events that respond to those groups is is amazing. So when people are do have the momentum when they do create something, people do come to it. And um, I, most of the events that I've gone to, even the ones where I felt like very out of place because I was the only BIPOC person there. I mean, people were generally pretty friendly and um, welcoming to to beginners. I think that seems to be a priority at, at most events, which is awesome. So if you were to create your dream event up there, what would it look like? Oh my God, I already have like a notepad about it. So I, <laughs> I, I kind of figured, I kind of figured. <laughs> you could already read it. Like, well, I'd love to create an ongoing BIPOC munch where people can just come and hang out. That would be awesome. But ultimately, I would love to do more rope events that were BIPOC friendly and or BIPOC centered and also have um, more less like technical ability stuff. But like, how do we create flow? How do we create connection? How do we create, you know, softness with ourselves when we're learning a new skill? How do we create art that isn't just replicating somebody else's? stuff because that's how I do rope I'm not interested I'm too like I I can't I can't pay attention to like the technical detail you just have the basics and then I want to go from there so um I'd love to create something something like that so yeah stay tuned Toronto we'll see we'll we'll manifest that into the universe and I'm you know I I have enough rope people who come on the show you know we we may end up with, with being able to help you out there yes if our listeners want to find you, if they want to take a class with you, if they want to buy your merch, which please do because it's wonderful. Um, I have sent meditate, medicate, and masturbate to a number of friends because I think it's the perfect mantra. Where do they find all the things? Thank you so much. Thank you for the merch love. Uh, they can find everything on my site at lunamatadas.com. It's like Hakuna Matadas, but Luna Matadas. And, or you can go through my Instagram at Luna Matadas. And there's about, there's 35 on-demand webinars. There's a bunch of Peg the Patriarchy merch, Meditate, Medicate, Masturbate, and some other brands like Beards Are Seats are, are on there too. <laughs> We'll have all of those links up on our show notes for our listeners. Follow I followed you for years. I love your work. I think you're phenomenal. Check out Racing Kink with her and and Marla. It's a great series. They have another one coming up this month, and we'll have all those links for you. And thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was such a good conversation. Thank you. And now, a moment of gratitude. Ooh, you know, I I've I've met so many different um, people through this work, and I didn't actually realize that I would make friends. And, and and working as an entrepreneur, it's you don't have colleagues, and so you kind of have these like loosey goosey connections, or you just see people when you work. But I mean, people like. Marla and I, we meet every week and we're talking business, but we're also just supporting each other as entrepreneurs. We're like, here we are having the same burnout conversation since 2021, you know, stuff like that. And um, I'm just grateful for for my friends that knew me before before all this that now, you know, come to my house and I'm installing a new dildo shelf or a new butt plug rack and really have just got to see me grow and support. I mean, they were so supportive during Peg the Patriarchy as well. So I think I'm grateful for my besties, all my besties.
Hi, and welcome to a segment of Ask Your Auntie with Auntie Vice. This is Auntie Vice here, and if you have a question, you can always reach me by emailing me at auntie, A-U-N-T-I-E, Vice, V-I-C-E, at fatchicksontop.com, or through my website at fatchicksontop.com. Today, we have a letter from someone, and he says, me and my partner need your advice. We are both in our 20s. I want to know how my partner can incorporate and implement belly button navel fetish play while focusing on my Audi belly button. I want to know how she can implement temperature play and if she could orgasm while focusing on my Audi while playing with it as well. And then he finally asked, does this make me weird? So I'm going to start with the last one first. No, it does not make you weird. Uh, Belly button fetishes are not horribly uncommon. They're not talked about a lot, but they are not completely out of the the norm realm. It just makes you more interesting than most people. So the first question is how to implement belly button play. Some people enjoy the more silly side of fetish, the more playful side of fetish. So things like blowing raspberries and licking your Audi navel could be an option for incorporating this into your, your kinky play. When it comes to temperature play, using ice cubes on or around an Audi belly button is a great way to incorporate the cold side of it. You can also use uh, any type of toy that's made out of either metal or borosilicate glass. Those can be frozen in the refrigerator and then rubbed on the skin to make a very cold and prolonged sensation more so than ice sometimes. If you want to go on the warmer side of things, try a little wax play. Use candles designed for wax play or paraffin-based candles like the uh, sometimes referred to as the Jesus candles you can get at the discount stores work well. I would avoid using birthday candles, Shabbat candles, or the pillar candles like Yankee candle scented candles that you get at craft stores because those burn at a much higher temperature and can burn the skin. But using a paraffin candle or a candle designed for wax play, drip the wax on and around your navel and let it harden, and then you guys can peel it off. If either of you were really into uh, putting glue on your fingers and letting it dry as a kid and then peeling it off, the removal of the wax is very similar and can be very satisfying for folks. And then the question about can you make her orgasm if she's focusing on your Audi belly button? Luckily, Audi's work is a great little place to rub up against it for people with clitoris. So if your partner has the hip flexibility, I would suggest putting a little lube on your Audi belly button and having her rub her clit up against it. You can also incorporate breast play. You could have her wear an insertable dildo while she rides your your little Audi belly button. You could incorporate some ass play. And as an added benefit for our, our letter writer, you'll have a wonderful view of your partner getting a lot of pleasure riding your Audi belly button. I hope that helps. And anybody else who needs advice, please feel free to drop us a line and I will get you on a show. Thank you. Texas of the world.
thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.